Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. So welcome to this ACE Podcast. My name is Vin Tankpreacher. I'm the host of this ACE podcast. I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University and also the editor-in-chief of Endocrine Practice. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Geetha Gopalakrishnan, and she will be talking about COVID with us and how it impacts care of our patients with diabetes and other endocrine conditions. Geetha, could you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes. Hi, Vin. Thank you for having me today. My name is Geetha Gopalakrishnan. I am a endocrinologist practicing in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm also the fellowship director for the fellowship program here. And in this capacity, I am I lead the fellowship education committee at ACE. And so I'm really excited to come talk to the group about COVID, COVID vaccines, and possibly fellowship education. Great. Thank you. So I know that COVID has been on everyone's mind in the in the past year, and it's it really is amazing that these vaccines have come out. And I really wanted to just start off with talking about the piece you wrote for Endocrine Practice about the importance of vaccines and how doctors can talk to their patients about vaccines. Could you give us a, a brief summary, synopsis of what you wrote? Yeah, we wrote the vaccine commentary probably in January as the vaccines were coming out and as the endocrine community um, was getting started in the process of vaccinating our patients. In order to get that started, we actually did a journal club at our institution and our fellows were involved in the journal club looking at the various vaccines that were there. And that prompted us to kind of think about it thoughtfully and put together a commentary for endocrine practice that we thought might be helpful for other institutions to kind of think through and where the vaccine technology is, what the side effects were. What was impressive at that time was, and in COVID in general, how fast the science has been moving forward at such a rapid pace. And even as we were writing the commentary over a two to three week period, the science was changing, the information that was coming out was phenomenal. And so it's a rapidly changing field and it has a lot of great people working on it in terms of the vaccine development, as well as getting it to the population in general. So we've made a lot of great strides in the past three months since the commentary has come out. So the commentary is a great starting point. I think we're in a different place now than we were then, but I think it has a lot of good information about COVID, COVID vaccines and where Mm -hmm. we were at that point. Great. I'm going to just ask you some questions that many of our patients ask, and and I don't expect you to know the answer to all these, but I'll start off with which would be the vaccine you prefer for patients seeking to get the COVID vaccine? (laughs) Um, Right now, the CDC does not recommend one vaccine over another. Whichever one you have access to is the vaccine that's being recommended right now. All three of them have, uh, there's three vaccines that are on the market right now, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, and all of them are reasonable choices for patients to get. So whichever one you have access to is the one I would recommend you get. Yeah, that's the common answer among our colleagues here. The first one you can get into your arm is the the best one. Uh, Another question that's come up, and I don't know if you know the answer to this one, we have patients who are on prolia for osteoporosis, and they they often call in, I just got my prolia shot, or I'm due for my prolia shot. Is it okay to get the vaccine? 
Yes, I think it's okay for you to get the vaccine with the Prolia shot. Do you recommend something different? I think so. That's (laughs) what I've been telling people. I I think, yeah, COVID is new. We're kind of understanding it. The vaccines are new. We'll get more information as it comes out. But Mm -hmm. at this point, I don't think we have enough data to dissuade anyone from not getting it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's more public safety and personal safety with getting the vaccine than worrying about theoretical potential consequences of a medication or something else at this point. I'll give you a theoretical one. Uh, I'm taking uh, estrogen hormone. I heard there's uh, chances of blood clots. Should I get the vaccine? <laughs> yeah. You know, the blood clots that have been identified have been associated with one vaccine, and that has to do with low platelets. And it's with Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And even if it's a very small subset of populations who are getting it. At this point, there's no contraindication from taking birth control pills or estrogen and getting these vaccines. It is something for you to think about in terms of birth control pills and estrogens potentially could increase the risk for clots. This particular type of vaccine has been associated with clots, but it's a different type of clot related Mm -hmm. to low platelets. So it's not necessarily linked. So I think at this point, the recommendations are to get it. The second thing is to recognize if you do get COVID infection. There's a risk for strokes associated with COVID infection. And that's about 10 times greater than your risk for clots from any of these vaccines. Mm -hmm. So when you put that in perspective, it's actually better to get the vaccine on a population basis. Yeah, that's that's great advice because we we often get that call. Should I continue my hormones or not? And it's it's a common issue. Another issue, we have many people that are diabetic and have obesity. And what do we know about COVID and that? And are there any special precautions we need to take for diabetics or any special advice we need to tell people with diabetes or obesity? Yeah. What we do know is patients with obesity or diabetes, type 1 or type 2, they're at risk for having severe illness. And what we mean by severe illness is the need of hospitalization, intensive unit cares, ventilation, and some of them could potentially even die from getting the infection. So these populations seem to be at higher risk for various reasons. And so for this subpopulations, it's ideal if we can prevent them from getting COVID. And that's why vaccines mm-hmm. and vaccine utilization and increasing that is really important. Yeah, I think so. I think so. There was a recent paper in endocrine practice published in February showing that people without diabetes and who had hyperglycemia and admitted yeah. with COVID had higher death rates compared to who, who yeah. didn't have hyperglycemia. Any comments on that? That, you know, it's, you know, that's a great thing. I'm laughing because we are actually part of a COVID East consortium with five other institutions. And we're looking at the same data, looking at glycemic control and COVID infections, mortality, mechanical ventilation. And we're finding the very same thing. The stress hyperglycemia and elevated blood sugars with and without diabetes makes someone seems to make someone at higher risk for morbidity, mortality related to COVID infection. It's hard to know chicken or the egg kind of a conversation. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know if it's because it is a marker for someone who's going to have, it's in a stressful situation, therefore the high blood sugar is a marker for that. And that we're identifying that, or if it's the hyperglycemia that's making them at higher risk. And that's harder to tease out. More studies will be needed to kind of figure that out. But yes, stress hyperglycemia seems to be a big marker with or without diabetes. It might not necessarily be COVID. It's just any illness and hyperglycemia 
Yeah, it could be. Well, we, it could be any illness and hyperglycemia, but what we don't know is if COVID has stresses this immune system more than other infections, because the mortality rates related to COVID were much higher than other viruses. And so there's something unique about COVID mm-hmm. and its infection, the consequences people are having that may be different. And mm-hmm. so that's something we have to kind of figure out. And one way to do that is possibly to look at studies like with flu vaccines versus flu infections versus mm-hmm. COVID infections to see if the mortality rate glycemic controls different. And those studies will be coming out, I'm sure, next year. Uh, that's a nice segue to talking about stress and infections. What about our people with adrenal insufficiency? Um, any advice that you give to those people? Yeah, adrenal insufficiency with or without COVID is one of those conditions, whenever you're in a stressful situation with an infection, you need to triple the dose of steroids. And mm-hmm. if you're in a really stressful situation, you need, maybe you need IV steroids. And with COVID, those parameters continue. I think okay. we need to continue to have those conversations with our patients. So ideally, they probably should get the vaccine as soon as possible. Yes. And I, I would say most endocrine patients, uh, if, you know, I think should be prioritizing themselves to get the vaccine. Now, one of the therapies that seems to work uh, when people get COVID is actually an endocrine therapy, steroids. <laughs> so have you seen any sort of tips on how to taper the steroids or how to give the steroids? What's happening at your university of how people get treated with steroids and, and get tapered off steroids? That's a great question. And I think, you know, and I think we're going to get more and more data on steroids and their impact on morbidity, mortality related to COVID and how much of an impact they've had. In our institution, has been, you know, the first wave of COVID, steroids were not used as consistently. By the second wave of COVID, we were using steroids more consistently. And they're given for like 10 days and they're taken off, essentially. So if they're given for steroids, high dose steroids tapered off over 10 days, and that's essentially what our protocol mm-hmm. has been. Has your protocol been different? I think so. Just 10 days. I mean, I guess I don't think they're considered permanently suppressed. It's just 10 days short term. Yeah. And Uh, so you've been taking them off after 10 days as opposed to doing anything else. I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> we need follow-up on those folks, but I, I believe that's just the, the what people do now. Yeah. And it probably causes a lot of issues with people who already have diabetes to begin with, to go on high-dose steroids. No, I, I think having COVID is a stress situation. We already talked about stress hyperglycemia, the blood sugars go up. Then you have steroids, which makes their blood sugars go up even higher. And the amount of glycemic elevations in people with COVID, with and without steroids, seems to be, and the requirements of insulin, at least anecdotally, have been noted to be much higher than other infections. Mm. So we'll have to see what, again, more data and more studies to kind of help us understand this would be helpful. Yeah, it would be very interesting to see. Perhaps there will be groups where they didn't get steroids and some people who did. And uh, there'll be a lot of subgroups to look at with people who got the very high hyperglycemia and who didn't. Uh, and, and I think that's, and you know, in, as part of our, you know, we're part of a consortium. We have University of Miami, Brigham, Joslin, ourselves, and SUNY are part of this consortium. And each one of the institutions have different practice styles and different ways. So this is one opportunity that gives us, you know, an opportunity to kind of look at that and evaluate that. I want to comment on one other endocrine hormone favorites, vitamin D. There was a study from Boston University mm-hmm. indicating that people with low vitamin D and had got COVID and were hospitalized had worse outcomes than those who had sufficient vitamin D status. Any comments on that? Should we be giving people vitamin D or should we do something different? 
I think standard practice is if you do identify people with low vitamin D to give them vitamin D into replacement ranges. The question is, are we testing people with COVID for vitamin D to identify them and recommending vitamin D replacement? And right now, I you know, with this kind of data, I, I think vitamin D is a very simple thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's a good health measure for bone health and other things. So I don't think there's any negative consequence by checking it as well as giving it. And, mm-hmm. as well, and if it's beneficial for COVID, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. I don't know about giving more than the recommended daily allowance as well as or going levels above the normal range that's recommended. I don't know if there's data for that. I think I share the same opinion. I think by the time you get COVID, it might be too late, but I can't hurt. But I think uh, taking a preventative approach, just like you said, just good health measures, making sure people's vitamin D is good, especially during the winter months. And uh, maybe that will help people prevent from contracting COVID. Or if they do get COVID, it will help the hospital course or uh, the length of COVID disease. Now, I have a question for you. Do you recommend just vitamin D for the population in general? Because there is a high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency. And, you know, the idea of testing to get treated versus should everybody just automatically assume that they need to be on 800 to 1000. Yeah, I think it's a moving target right now. I think most people agree that having low vitamin D is not good. So I think that if you're someone who does not get much sunlight and uh, you don't consume any products with vitamin D, it, it makes sense to take a vitamin D supplement, especially if you have conditions that are exacerbated by low vitamin D, like um, uh, low bone density. You know, that right now there are controversies about whether or not vitamin D prevents cardiovascular disease and cancer. But I think just for general health, if you fall in those categories where you're chronically low in vitamin D, I see no harm for the general public to take a vitamin D supplement. I think this also applies to COVID. It's very interesting because a lot of the institutionalized people were at high risk of uh, morbidity and mortality from COVID. Uh, and, you know, I, I think for those folks who, who are, are prone to vitamin D deficiency, probably just, just take a supplement. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say with COVID, it made all of us who are outside going outside, go indoors, right? So mm-hmm. I think more people were spending more time indoors as opposed to going out and outside playing mm-hmm. in communities. So I worry about vitamin D um, deficiencies and people at risk getting worse over this time period. I think we all got vitamin D deficient during this whole period of social distancing. And I think it's really, I'm sure there'll be data coming out showing their levels really dropped. I want to spend the last five to 10 minutes about bringing this back to um, your practice. So recently I've been asking everyone that comes in the clinic, have you gotten the vaccine? Have you gotten the vaccine? And, and for the most part, most people have gotten it, but there are a few people who still are resistant. So give us some pearls. What do you tell these people about the vaccine and why they should get it? Yeah, I have a very similar practice to yours as well. I think I tend to ask all my patients whether they get COVID, they've gotten the COVID vaccine just as part of the conversation. And you know, in Rhode Island, there's been a huge public health measure. So most of my patients have gotten it. And I would say 95% have gotten it mm. so far. And so for the patients who are saying, no, I haven't gotten it. I think the key element is to approach a conversation and engage them because we've you know, say, have you gotten the vaccine? If they say no, and engage them in a conversation about what they're thinking, what their thoughts, what they've heard about it, just kind of open-ended question to start the conversation to see where they're at. And that gives a springboard for the next set of conversations where you can help. If it's information they need, then you can, you know, supplement them with information and resources, and then address some of their concerns. I think most people who 
have concerns about vaccines or have the concerns I also had before I got my vaccine. And so sometimes having a conversation about what made me come to my decision of getting the vaccine and encouraging my family and friends to get the vaccine helps in those discussions. The thing to keep in mind is healthcare providers we are a very unique position. We come into people's lives at a very vulnerable time and we build relationships with our patients. And so we have an opportunity to have these very intimate conversations in a very thoughtful way and engage them and encourage them and have them work through their concerns and see if we can help them at least rethink their thought process or rethink what they're thinking and what their concerns are. One of the tricks that one of our providers here is, uh, has used is 100% of the doctors here have gotten the vaccine. I, <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I say as well. I said, I got it. My entire family has it. I know all the risks and benefits. And there's a reason I'm putting everybody in a position of getting it. People have their own concerns and they're valid mm-hmm. and we have to just recognize that. But I'm hoping if you plant a seed, they'll go home. I don't need to finish the conversation today. I can have it at the next conversation and the conversation after that. What about one excuse I get is, well, I had COVID. I don't need to get the vaccine. What, how, what's your response to that? You know, the, again, COVID is so new. We don't know when you have vaccine, you have antibodies that develop as a result of it, how long it lasts. And there's better data on the vaccines and how long the vaccine efficacy is. And so I think the current recommendations are if you've had vaccine, you still get the, if you've had COVID, you still get the vaccine. Yeah, I think you're right. I had a uh, patient a couple of weeks ago who, I guess there's supposed to be a window, like you wait 60 days or something. I, yeah. <laughs> but they got the vaccine pretty soon in that window. And they, they said they got really sick. I don't know what, what I, that is supposed yeah. to happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, I mean, I always assumed that the early stages when they set the 90 day window was because there was such a limitation on vaccines mm. and people with COVID have already had antibodies. So they should be further down in the line and yeah. then to give other people opportunities, how I thought it started off. And there was also concern after 90 days, whether the antibody levels will drop mm. and so vaccines would be more beneficial, but you could get the vaccine earlier than waiting the 90 days. There's no consequence to it. So okay. even if you had cat vaccine, you just have to get out of the acute illness phase and you could potentially get it. Okay. That's good to know. So I, I think the answers a lot of our questions. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to know the future. I know what's on everyone's mind is, do, will I need a booster in the fall? And I don't think you know the answer yeah. to that. I mean, I think we'll know as they get antibody tests and see what antibody levels are and if you need a booster. The other thing is the variants that are coming through. So Uh, far, all the variants that have come out and have been identified are the current vaccines are efficacious mm -hmm. against, but we'll have more information if something changes along those lines. Yeah, I mean, at least so far, so good. We're recording this right around the annual meeting time. And, and, you know, the country is slowly opening up. And, you know, the NBA is opening up all their arenas and and all the restaurants are opening up. But you don't see a blip up. So I guess the vaccines are working. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, if you're asking about how I end my conversation, it's the idea of not wearing masks and be able to, you know, engage people again, going to restaurants, going to public places. So if you talk about an incentive to get a vaccine, that is it. I think so. I mean, I guess, I mean, you're at more risk now if you're one of the people who don't want to get a vaccine and then everyone is opening up. Yeah. You probably still have to social distance and wear a mask. And that's just not going to be fun. Yeah. (laughs) 
I think it's been great to have you. I, I think this is going to continuously evolve. And I mean, I guess COVID will not ever completely go away, but hopefully we won't have to spend all this time talking about it and we can go <laughs> a little bit back to normal life. Do you have any other final remarks? No, I think, you know, uh, one of the things I've been really impressed with is, you know, uh, we couldn't have controlled COVID, but I've been really impressed how the healthcare industry, the population in general, all of us really got together and tried to solve a really complex problem in a very short period of time. It took a lot of effort from vaccine development to distribution, as well as patients, as well as you know, providers playing a role in this whole process. And so I think kudos to all of us. We've, you know, a year later, yeah. we're further along than we've ever been. And I'm excited. I think there's lots of good things yeah. that are headed. And we can't forget the our healthcare workers who, I mean, some areas of the country were working you know, 100 hour uh, work weeks and taking extra shifts. And especially our colleagues in the ICUs and emergency room. Yeah. I mean, really, everyone really pulled together and just really want to thank them. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think um, some parts of the country, as well as some groups of providers got disproportionately affected. And without them, we wouldn't be here today. And so I think it took, it's a team sport. So. And even our trainees, I mean, just, uh, uh, you know, we, we were, uh, we weren't as affected here in Georgia, but our trainees were, you know, on uh, standby lists and ready to, uh, go in and they willingly signed up for these lists and uh, really give yeah. them a lot of props. You're absolutely right. Because the thing is, you know, one is the providers in general, but those residents and fellows who are essentially on the front line for a lot of this effort, because they were the providers on site and on the hospital and endocrine fellows in particular who were on backup lists and um, who got redeployed, I think played a great service during this time period. Our fellows got redeployed. And mm-hmm. even when they didn't get redeployed, you know, over the holidays and other people that other time periods, when they want to be with their families, they had to be on backup lists and, you know, travel was limited and other things mm-hmm. were limited because we were in New England. And so it was a stressful time period for everybody, but I think we're on the other side. So we're excited. And that's also the one of the, you know, one of the good things is it's the fellows who started the commentary that's about vaccines because they could see this light at the end of the tunnel came out of their journal club. So this is, it's a full circle. Well, I can't wait till I see you in person, hopefully maybe (laughs) next year at the ACE annual meeting or some other meeting. (laughs) Been a while. I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen you in person for over a year, but I've seen you plenty on Zoom. I know. I think yes. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks again for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on another topic. And hopefully it won't be COVID. It'll be a distant memory. Yes, that would be lovely. But it was great hanging out with you then today. I hope you're doing well in Atlanta. And we will definitely hang out in a year. Yes, promise. I just knocked (laughs) on one. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll have our masks off. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.